Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. Hallelujah. Hey, would you do something for me? Would you stand up again? I, you'll be sitting for a little while. Just stand up again if you would. Do yourself a favor and me a favor. Just kind of stretch your hands up like this. And we say, Father, we need you to renew our minds today, Lord. Renew our minds. Help us to see you high and lifted up, pouring out your love into us. Amen, 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 amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. If you have your Bibles and your note-taking material and stuff, get it out. And uh, I want to just very quickly uh, give you something. If you're taking notes, and you, I, I hope you are, but write this down. We, uh, as a family of God, connected together in this place, we have been given a commandment from our Lord that we make disciples. When Jesus left the earth, he said to his men, as far as we know, the last thing he said was, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them what I have taught you. In other words, do for others what I've done for you. I've stayed with you. I've modeled the life of God in front of you, and I want you to do that for other people. And that's what we want to be more effective in doing. And I want you to imagine for a minute that uh, you go back to the first few weeks that you became a Christian, the, back in the first few weeks that you were born again. What would it have been like if you would have had the blessing of having someone who loved you and cared for you invest a little bit of time for a few weeks laying a foundation in your life in an understanding of God and His love for you, His purpose for you, so that you could not be shaken? That's the goal that we have because that's the goal that Jesus has for His church. That when people are born into the kingdom of God, and we're thrilled that over the last many months we've had regularly, we've seen people who have come and been born into the family of God, baptiz baptisms and uh, new people that need to be discipled in the Lord. And I want you to imagine that there are four simple basic things that we can be effective in laying as foundation stones in people's life. And what a difference it would have made for most of us if these four things would have been laid immovable in our lives in just the first few weeks that we were converted. Number one, the foundation stone that I am loved by God because He has chosen to love me. Not because I'm lovable, but because He has chosen to love me. You lay that foundation stone in a new believer's life and they're not going to be shaken. Number two, the foundation stone that I can live a life that is pleasing to God. I can do that because He is living in me and living through me. If we learn that from day one, it changes everything for us. Number three, I can fulfill my eternal destiny. The will of God will and can be done in my life because God has determined to finish the work that He started. Not because I'm so good at this, 
But Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident that he who began this good work, he will finish it. If a new believer gets that stone laid in their foundation, they will not be shaken. And lastly, number four, the stone that says, I am never alone because he has come to live in me and he has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. But not only that, but he has also put me in a spiritual family so that I would be surrounded by his people who because he's living in them, they will love me even when I am at times unlovable. You know, those four simple stones are what we want to help lay in individuals' lives so that they will not be shaken. And they'll be able to turn around and do that very same thing. These are not complicated things. What Jesus instructed those disciples to do in that first century, those were not complicated things. One of the reasons they weren't complicated was because the literacy rate in first century Rome was less than 3%. Most of the people of Jesus' generation couldn't read. So this had to be so simple that people sitting down together could simply speak these truths, and because these truths are living words of God, they would take root and grow in people's lives who didn't have any education. But the other reason it's simple is because it's the power of God that does it, and not me, not you, not anybody. It's the power of God, the power of His grace working in our lives. So we want to be able to do that and do that more effectively. And it's one of the issues that we're working on now is to provide simple materials that you and I can use every day. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to be very clear that what God has invited us into in our relationship with Him, revolves all around the word trust. If you take notice, for the last several months, virtually everything that those of us who have been sharing the word have been sharing about, in one way or another, has dealt with this word trust. That God is calling us into a relationship with Him that is based on our ability to trust Him. The question that I have to deal with in my life every day, and one of the reasons why I wanted you to stand up with me and just ask the Lord to renew our mind, is that I have to have my mind renewed every day, sometimes more than once in a day, depending on circumstances. I have to have my mind renewed that God is trustworthy to me. See, I don't have a problem believing that God is worthy of trust. I sometimes struggle with believing that He's worthy of trust from me because I know me. Now, you, you're wonderful, so I know you trust God. Me, on the other hand, I know me. But you see, all this, when we look at Bible history, when we look at God's dealings with people from the Garden of Eden on down, all of it, all of it revolves around this word, trust. Understanding that that's what God is inviting us into. And understanding part of the dilemma. We're dealing with a God who is a spirit. We cannot see Him. One day we will. But we have not yet seen him, yet we believe. What an amazing thing. But that is because the reality of his spirit and his living word. But what God invites us into is a relationship of trust. And this is what God has always wanted. However, this relationship of trust has not always been possible for God to have with people. One of the areas that trust is such a big deal for all of us is in our 
substance, in our money, in our provision, our food, our bills being paid, our clothing, where we live. Those real things in our lives where God invites us to trust Him, where Jesus said in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you drink. How many have ever, I mean honestly now, be, be honest instead of lying. Be, be, be honest. How many have ever read that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said don't worry, and, and thought to yourself, yeah, that's easy for you to say, you, you make bread out of nothing. <laughs> but of course, what God is inviting us into is a relationship of trust, trusting He who does make something out of nothing, and He says He will do that for us. But God hasn't always been able to deal with His people out of trust. In fact, most of the, new, uh, most of the Old Testament is an ongoing story of God having to deal with people who really struggle to trust Him. Even though He demonstrated both His love and His power again and again and again and again. You know, when you read the Old Testament and you read about curses that came and, and fire out of heaven and the ground opens up and so on, always remember that those things were never God's choices. Previous to those things, you see again and again where God tried to reveal Himself in love and kindness and compassion, and they refused. You and I are given the opportunity to choose to trust Him. And we're given the opportunity, especially in the realm of money and material things, we're given the opportunity to grow our trust in Him. That hasn't always been that way. Open your Bibles to Malachi 3, and I want to say something about tithe and offering. Now, for those of you that know me and have heard me teach very much, you probably wonder why in the world would he go to Malachi 3? Because we've heard him say before that he no longer believes that this statement in Malachi 3 applies to us in the New Covenant. Well, that's true. I don't. I believe it served its purpose for its day and it was done and fulfilled. But I do want us to notice here why God had to deal with Israel in this way. But he wants something different. He wanted something different for them. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about the fact that he tried and tried and tried to bring them into his rest, but they would not. You and I have a chance to come into a life of rest, but it's all based on trust. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe which means a tenth or 10%, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine uh, in the field cast its grapes or drop them too early so that they rot. Now, these are words from God, but these are words from God to a people who again and again, when God tried to reveal His kindness, His goodness, and His control over all of nature, they refused to trust Him. So He had to deal with them in a harsh way. The good news for us is that Jesus came, took upon Himself all of the curse that came from the fall. The curse that's referred to here, Jesus took upon Himself. So God no longer says to you or I, if you do not give, then I'm going to curse you. What God does say is, I'm going to give you the choice. 
You can grow in your ability to trust me or you can shrink in your ability to trust me. I'm going to give you the choice because what God has always been after has been a relationship based on trust. From the Garden of Eden, God makes Adam and Eve and he provides everything for them. I've sometimes, in my more esoterical moments, I've wondered, what must that have been like for Adam and Eve to suddenly come into existence, have full consciousness? And I wonder if they woke up every morning wondering, is it still going to be here? Is the garden still going to be here? Where did this come from? How long is it going to continue? You remember why God gave Noah and his children the, or the rainbow? Because you know how they're going to feel every time it starts to rain. Uh-oh. Here we go again. So, so God gives them a sign. Why? So that when it starts to rain, they'll just trust. They'll trust. So God gives them a sign so that they can trust. Throughout all of God's dealing with people, this issue of trust has revolved around what the Bible refers to as offering or sacrifice. God taught Adam and Eve how to sacrifice. They clearly taught their sons. The argument that Cain and Abel had had to do with sacrifice, sacrifice to God. But think about the fact for a moment that human beings sacrificing things to God doesn't help God. God doesn't eat food. So if we give an offering of food, He doesn't eat that. He doesn't need that. So then why would God from the Garden of Eden on down institute this relationship where human beings take what they need to survive and give it to someone who doesn't need it? The reason is trust. Take what you need to survive and understand that that is not your source. That is not what you need to survive. I know you think it is, but that is not what you need to survive. What you need to survive is trust in me because I am the one who gives all good things. The new covenant says all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above, that that's the one who is in control. So God, from the beginning of time, has built this relationship with human beings so that we would give and then trust Him to give back to us. Give and trust Him then to provide for us. So that we could enter into this relationship of trust. In order for us to do that, we have to get clear on a theological difficulty. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago while we were talking on this same subject. But it's important that we understand something. And I've not always understood this. I have, I, I, I have taught things along this line that, that I now look back and regret. And I've had to apologize to a few folks. And that's one of the problems with having your messages recorded is about every 10 years or so you need to kind of give everybody a refund. And, you know, well, anyway. <clears throat> but, but what you notice is this, that in the last hundred years or so, among us Pentecostals, Charismatics, and I'm a proud one, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit filling people up and speaking in other tongues and miracles. And I believe in all that. One of the interesting facts about the belief about trust in God and 
creation and, and, and who's in control of all of this is that when you look historically in the writings of the church fathers, you don't find the point that I'm going to make here in just a minute until about the last 100 years. And it's become very popular over the last 100 years, but it wasn't before that. And that's this idea that when God created the heavens and the earth, he then created Adam and he gave Adam control over what he created. Now, what the, new, what, the, what the book of Genesis says is that God gave Adam dominion. And we have to be careful how we interpret that because it's become a bit of a popular teaching these days to say, well, what God did was he made the heavens and the earth, and then he gave control over that to Adam. But when Adam sinned in the garden, he gave control over the earth to the devil. And now the devil is in control of the earth. And I want you to know that is not true. The Bible is very clear who owns it all. And as long as you and I think that maybe the devil can exert power over commerce, that the devil can exert power over the fruit of the ground, that the devil can somehow control your job situation or your boss or your income or your ability to sell, if that's what you do for a living. If we're thinking that somehow the devil has the authority and the power over that, we're never going to be able to relax and rest and trust God. We must be very clear in what God says to us about what we're going to believe. Now, let's take a look at this. Put up slide one, if you would, for just a moment. These are a few of the things that the Old Testament people clearly understood. This is David writing, and he says, The earth is the Lord's, and not only that, but everything that's in it, and all who live in it, whether they know God or not, He is the ruler over all the earth, and everything that's in it. We go to the next one, and this is when Moses was having his showdown with Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was the Lord over everything. But Moses says, as soon as I leave the city, I will lift up my hands and pray to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail will stop. This will prove to you that the earth belongs to the Lord. And then some 40 years later, go on to the next one if you would. For some 40 years later... Moses is reminding the children of Israel what happened 40 years before. And he says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Again, declaring the reality that it's not the devil who is in charge, but it's God. And because he is in control, you and I look to him for our source and nothing else. You know, the book of Job is a difficult book for a lot of people because we just can't seem to answer the question, why do good things happen to bad people? And I personally think Job's been given a bad rap by some folks. I, I wrote a, a, uh, uh, an article not too long ago uh, that was entitled, Let's Stop Jabbing Job. And uh, the reason I wrote it was because I think Job gets blamed for a lot of things that the book of Job itself teaches is something different. But at the very end of the book, this is what Job says. Though he could not understand most of what happened to him, this is what he says he learned. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, God asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? He was talking to Job. 
And then Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. The Apostle Paul carries this same theme on in the book of Romans because in the book of Romans is this awesome, amazing, wonderful family secret. As members of God's family, you and I have the privilege of having a marvelous secret about what it means to be part of God's family. It's in Romans 8, 28, and it says, For we know that all things must work together for the good of those who love Him. The world can't claim that. That's a secret for us, for God's people, that He who lives above and beyond time and rules all has promised to work everything out for our own good. So God keeps drawing us into this relationship of trust. And in this relationship of trust, He has he keeps bringing us to the issue that's the most difficult for us. Jesus referenced it in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. Don't worry about those things. They are important, but don't worry about them because your Father knows what you need and he will care for you. Throughout all of human existence, God has had to strike at the heart of this issue of what for us would be money. In the Old Testament days where they didn't do business with money, they did it with property or produce or chickens or whatever. But it all came down to the same thing, our substance, what we survive. Can we trust God to provide for us? Can we do that? Turn to Proverbs chapter 3 because this is where God lays it out for us so clearly. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of man and uh, God and man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord. Now here we are. See, this is the issue. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, for it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And then in verse 9, we get to where the rubber meets the road. This is the issue. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So as God speaks to us from His Word about trust, He invariably has to get to the issue of our money, our possessions, what we need, not only to survive, but to have a reasonably nice life. So again, we find this dilemma of God saying, honor me by giving offering." Honor me, and in this particular passage, it repeats what is repeated several times in the Old Covenant, and that's the issue of first fruits. Again and again, God speaks to His people, and He says, I want you to honor me with the first fruits. Now, the issue of the first fruits is important because the issue of first fruits really demonstrates the struggle of trust. When I bring in the first generation of produce, 
or crop. I don't know whether I'm going to have too much rain in the next few weeks and kill everything. I don't know if I'm going to have too much sun and kill everything. I don't know if I'm going to have an overflow of insects and kill everything. All I know is I've got this first round of crops. That's a guarantee. And then God says, give that away. Give away the thing you're sure of. Because I want you to be more sure of me. I want you to be more sure of my promise. So in a very natural way, a literal natural way, he says to Israel, all right, go out, and the first produce that you get, that's a, hand, that's a bird in the hand. That's a guarantee. Now I want you to give your offering from that. You see, throughout human history, God has dealt with us. Much of the teaching of the Scripture revolves around an understanding of agriculture, uh, an agrarian society. So a farmer is always facing the dilemma of what am I going to do with the seed that I now have? I've got two choices. I can either turn it into food and eat it now, or I can plant it in faith that if I put 10 grains in, a hundred will come out. That's what happens when you plant corn. I was born and raised in the middle of Illinois, right in the soybean corn belt there. And as a kid, we were surrounded by cornfields. And when you plant a kernel of corn, you don't expect to get one kernel back. You expect to get a lot of kernels back. So a farmer is always facing this issue. What am I going to do? How much faith do I have? Am I going to take what I've got for sure and eat it all up? But if I do that, then I'm not going to have any crop come up later. I'm not going to have a chance for a harvest. On the other hand, if I plant this seed, I don't have it to eat, but I'm planting it in faith. But what happens if I get too much rain or not enough rain? Or Well, I'm going to have to trust the one who's in charge of the rain. I'm going to have to trust the one who's in charge of what grows. And there we find a dilemma that God keeps drawing us into this issue of trusting Him and trusting Him for our future, having to deliberately give of our first fruits. And this has always been the problem. You know, the believers in the first century faced this in a very literal way. Because if you read about the Holocaust of the first century Rome and how between the Jews in Israel and Nero as the uh, Caesar over Rome from 52 AD to 68 AD, the Christians were being slaughtered on both sides. They were being hounded everywhere. And when you go to Rome, if you go and visit Rome these days, you can go into the catacombs and do a tour and find places where Christians literally lived in underground graveyards because that was the only place that they could hide from the Romans who were after them. And it's to those people that the New Testament is written. It's to those people that Paul would write and say, give and it shall be given unto you. Or Jesus would say, give and it shall be given unto you. Paul would write and he would say, be faithful to God and give. Give generously. Let your heart move you to give. Now, under the Old Covenant, God had to set up a series of blessings and cursings. 
We find this predominantly in, or succinctly in Deuteronomy 28. Where Deuteronomy 28 over and over again says, this is the way the old covenant's going to work. If you do good, then I will bless you. If you do bad, then I will curse you. You do this good, I will bless you. Do this bad, I will curse you. But in the new covenant, God is trying to entice us in to a relationship based on trust. So what happens in the new covenant is he puts his own spirit inside of us. And then Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, let each of you decide in your own heart what you're going to give. Decide in your own heart what you're going to give. Because God wants us to develop this trust relationship of Him living inside of us. So we're always faced with the dilemma, do I eat it or do I plant it? Do I eat it or do I sow it? And the adventure that God wants to draw us into is one where we can sow with joy. We can sow because it puts us in the adventure. The adventure of God enticing us to say, do you trust me? Can you trust me? Am I, am I trustworthy? If I'm trustworthy, then step out. If I'm trustworthy, then help someone else with what you would use to help yourself. And then an amazing thing begins to happen in the body of Christ. That is that God, in setting us up as His family, the analogy that Paul uses most often about the people of God is that we are the body of Christ. And you know how Paul refers to the eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. The eye can only see, but it can't hear. So God limits each of us so that we will trust others and let God move through others for our benefit. We depend on the rest of the body. Well, the Bible also teaches that just like a human body that has a circulatory system in it, just like in our own human body we have a heart that pumps and we have lungs that bring in air and that air gets mixed with the blood and it gets carried throughout and the nutrients and what we need gets circulated throughout our body. No one member of the body can pull itself away because if it does, it gets out of the circulatory system and it immediately begins to die. So God brings His people together, both locally and universally. But of course, we can't really understand this in comparison to the believers in China or Africa. But on the local level, we begin to understand that what God does is, is He begins to move in the midst of a group of people, large or small, and He develops a circulatory system so that I listen to the Holy Spirit inside of me and He moves me to give to you. Now, normally, we charismatics, we say things like, well, the Lord told me. What we really mean is we had a what? A feeling. Come on. I know that doesn't sound nearly as spiritual. <laughs> I have a feeling that I ought to do this. Well, is it a good thing to do? Yeah, I think it's a good thing to do. Well, then do it. Yeah, but I'm not sure if it's the will of God. I'm waiting for one hand or the other to heat up so I know which way to go. You know what Paul says? Do whatever your heart tells you to do. 2 Corinthians 9, let each of you decide in your own heart how much you're going to give. What will your heart 
encourage you to do? The Holy Spirit is living in you. What will He encourage you to do? So an amazing thing begins to happen. We start to get a feeling. You know, I got a feeling like I ought to, I ought to give this. And lo and behold, we find that the person that ended up getting it had been praying for that. And we become the answer to somebody's prayer. We're going to have to be raising more money around here so that we can finish building our auditorium. There's some good reasons for that. So that we can disciple more people. You know, a year or two from now, you're going to look around here and you're going to see literally in every nook and cranny throughout the day and the evening, people are being discipled. Two over here and four over there and three over here and five over there. You're going to see that over and over and over and over and over again. To do that, we have to have the resources. So we're going to have to give. But the, but the cool deal is, the more we give, the more we have seed in the ground. And if we have seed in the ground, we can expect a harvest. Now, I understand that God is in complete control about when, where, and how your harvest comes up. But Linda and I have always lived our lives looking at this saying, we want to make sure we got enough seed in the ground. I don't want to be a farmer who eats all of his seed. I want to eat what I need, but I want to have plenty for sowing so that if I have seed in the ground, let me tell you what happens when a farmer has seed in the ground. He has faith to believe something's going to come up. He sows in faith because he believes something's going to come up. If you talk to a farmer who's looking at a barren field and you say, what are you expecting? The question is, what have you planted? If he says, well, I'm expecting to have a good harvest. Of course, I didn't plant anything this year. But the issue is having seed in the ground. Now, listen to this. This is important. Put up slide five, if you would, please. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're talking about circulation in the body of Christ. Listen to this. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Give according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. God is not measuring what you give by what anybody else gives. God knows exactly what your needs are, exactly what your income is, exactly what your future is. So God will move on your heart to give as you should give, not compared to how someone else should give. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Now listen, I love this, I love this. Lynn and I try to build our life on this. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, some later time, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, but he who gathered little did not have too little. The beauty of the body of Christ is that God uses members to circulate in every area of our needs. How many, uh, how many are aware that uh, two wonderful members of our spiritual family are Walt and Mary Lynn Wood. You know, the Woods, they, they're missionaries in Peru, wonderful people, love them. 
And uh, they live on partnership. They live on the giving of people who help support their ministry. And an interesting thing happens with uh, Walt and Mary Lynn and Linda and I. The ministry that we have, our overseas work and all that and all the uh, materials that we give away and all those things, we pay for all that by partners, by giving. Some of you are partners with us. And so you give toward that and that's what helps us do that. But an interesting thing happens. Walt and Mary Lynn love my teaching. They love my books. And because they want my teaching and what, I, or what I'm teaching and what I'm writing and that sort of to get to more people, they missionaries who live on giving, they send us offerings. Now, one of the interesting things is we really love what they're doing for the Peruvian people. So we send them offerings. Sometimes the checks pass in the mail. And some might say, well, that seems kind of dumb. Why don't you both just keep what you got and you'll still be even? Well, there's a reason why not. Because we wouldn't be sowing. The issue is not an accounting issue. The issue is a heart issue. We love them. We love what they do. We want to give to that. But they love us. They want to give to what we do. But that's the circulatory system in the body of Christ. Some years ago, a young man that I had the pleasure of mentoring as he entered into his full-time ministry was sitting in a conference, 1,000 people, spent all of his money to get there, young father. And as he said in one of the sessions, he began to talk at the break with the young man sitting beside him, found out that young man had come from Africa, third world country, very poor, spent all the money that he had to come to this conference. And as they sat there at the break and began to talk, my friend, really, his heart just really went out to this guy. And he began to really feel like he wanted to do something to bless this guy. But he didn't have any money. He had already spent all his cash just getting to the conference and getting a room for the three days of the conference. But as he sat there during the next session, he started looking down at his watch. Now, this watch was a pretty expensive watch. His mom and dad had given it to him for his 21st birthday. And after a while, he began to feel like he ought to give that guy his watch so that the man could sell it and then use the money. So finally, he thought, thought well, I'll just run the risk of looking weird. He took off his watch and he turned to the guy and he said, look, man, I... I would really like to give you an offering, but I don't have any cash. But I do have a pretty expensive watch. So I'd like you to have it, sell it, and use it for you and your family when you get back home. The guy broke down crying, really blessed, really touched him. And that was that. Later on that afternoon, they came back for the afternoon session. And while my friend is sitting there in the seat waiting for the meeting to start, Somebody tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around. There was a young man standing behind him. The young man leaned down, whispered in his ear, and he said, man, I know this is probably going to sound really, really stupid, but I just have had a feeling all morning, and I can't shake it. I think I'm supposed to give you this watch. And it was the exact same model watch that my friend had given 
Now, look, I'll be honest with you. I hear a story like that, and my first thought is, why didn't God tell that guy to give that watch to that guy and save all that rigmarole, all that time there? But you and I know the answer because he wanted my friend to be involved in a little miracle. He wanted my friend to be involved in feeling something in his heart and just stepping out and doing it because he, he felt it in his heart. And somehow he felt that if I could just give something, that, that God will take care of me somehow. And that's what God wants for us. God doesn't measure what we give by what somebody else gives. He knows us. He knows our future. He knows what's coming. But we don't put our confidence in our job or our employer. Oh, we appreciate them. We honor them according to the Scripture. In fact, when we work there, we work not as unto men, but as unto the Lord. But we never view them as our source. And then we ask God to move our hearts. Move our hearts. Challenge us. I want you to do this. I want you to ask the Lord to move your heart about your giving. It may be just your giving in general. It may be that in general you need to give more. It may be specific. It may be somebody that God is wanting to use you to be an answer to their prayer, to bless them. Whatever it is, God wants to deal with us on the level of our heart without threat, without punishment, without curse, but deal with us in our heart so that we'll learn to get in the adventure of trusting Him a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. So, Lord Jesus, we ask You to move on our hearts. We do, Lord. We ask You to move on our hearts. We realize, oh God, that You are utterly trustworthy. We also realize that we need to grow our heart to trust You more. So I ask You right now, in Jesus' name, move on our hearts. It may be something consistent you want us to do more of. It may be a one-time event where we just bless somebody because they need it and we need to give it. But move on our hearts, Lord. Most importantly, teach us to get both feet into this adventure of giving and receiving, of being part of the circulatory system in the body of Christ, that we may all grow, that we might see men and women discipled into your kingdom that your kingdom may grow, that your government may increase in the earth, world without end. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.